Yorana Tato and Aloha Kako. Welcome to Native Stories. No te whenua vaihi mai vau, e whae a vau i te whenua moorea i te iene. Welcome, my name is Behia Wheeler. And today we have our guest Keolu Fox, who is a Kanaka Maoli genome scientist, born and raised in on Big Island, Hawaiian Islands. And Real Hawaii. <laughs> he has a background in um, medical... Sciences. Aloha kako, yorana, kia ora, all good, maika'i. Mahalo nui for having me here and to all of our listeners, aloha kako. My name is Kei Olu and I'm happy to talk to you about many things. Like Vahia said, I kind of have a background in medical genetics and human genetics and thinking about our people's health broadly, and I'm excited to be here. Um, so why don't we get into it? I'm sure everyone wants to know maybe a little bit more Ooh. about your background or what you do, actually. Yeah. What is a genome? What is a genome scientist? Honestly, before I met you, never heard of it, never crossed my mind. I didn't even, it wasn't even in my realm of thinking. People who focus on genome sciences One, uh, this is sad but true, and we're trying to increase these numbers, but I think I'm the first Kanaka to receive a doctorate in one of these degrees, which indicates that we need more people from our communities to focus on whatever genome science is. But it is basically thinking about our mo'oku auhau, our whakapapa, our genealogical relation to our kupuna, tupuna, our ancestors. So if you think about it, you are, each of us is the sum total of the genomes of our mom and dad. And we represent this lineage of kupuna going back to, you know, as far as Africa, really. Um, But we are our diaspora, the genome and the variation we see in people, whether it's hair color, skin color, eye color, susceptibility to disease, all of these things are a reflection of the ebb and flow of the Moana and our relationship to our place, our Aina. And that's a really important idea. I think that's really in sync with what our ancestors thought as well. We just have new technologies to measure things and measure the genomes and measure genetics in ways that are reproducible and accurate and allow us to not only think about how our diaspora and our migratory history, you know, something like our kupuna spanning the whole Pacific Ocean In less than a thousand years, something like that expansion really has an impact on not only where we're from, but where we're going and what our susceptibility to disease is. So there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there. But I hope that definition is sort of helpful. Yeah, that definitely helps. I mean, um, you you're you're touching on kind of a lot of a lot of things there. And maybe we can go into more depth with that to um, help our our listeners uh, understand Roger a little bit that. more. Yeah. So, mm. for example, why is it, why why even study genomes? Like, why is that important? Like, what kind of, um, I know that you said, like, it gives us 
historical background of our own selves. But like, for example, my myself, I rely on oral histories where my mom says mm. I come from is where I come from. And we, I guess we have right some uh, papers to support that and not support that. You know, those things are tricky too. But so like for me, I'm like, okay, well, I know where I come from. Like I have stories on my mom's mm. side and my dad's side and I'm happy with that. So how does genome science uh, and why, how do they, how does that, ex- how is that explored within genome sciences and why is that um, significant? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the idea of where we come from and what our mo'oku auhau and what our ohana says that our olelo or mo'olelo and, and, and sort of like legacy is, is not uh, out of sync with our understanding of genetics and genome sciences. I think they're one in the same thing. Hmm. And so it's just that we haven't had enough indigenous people. We haven't had enough native voices influence and form the kind of the way we think about that data. That's something to think about because if you think about how much agency our people have had in these types of science um, using these emerging tools in Western institutions, uh, it's been very, very little up until now. There's a good group of people coming up that are not just Kanaka or uh, from the Moana, the Pacific, but Navajo Nation, Lakota, First Nations, you know, many, many different um, indigenous communities that are thinking about these issues. So our understanding of where we come from does not have to be, it doesn't have to challenge our origin stories. A lot of the time we see the same thing. It's just the way we describe it different is different. And the way that we interpret that data sometimes can be different. Um, But a lot of the times it's quite similar and I have a number of examples, but I think it's just important to say, look, our the the science our ancestors practiced is not um, in conflict with the science of today. Mm. In fact, you can you can bring them together. You can can recombine them. You can combine them in novel ways to produce a bunch of incredible things, including better health for our people to reduce and inform health disparity. And uh, strengthen the way we think about our past. Like really, I don't know how you say that one in, in Tahitian, but I know you guys have the same saying or Tareo. But, but I, think, I think that's something that we need to think about when we interpret the data. It's more like who's doing the interpreting because that's where the bias comes in. And that's where these kind of like you could get racist narratives about, about our health that are disconnected from the effects of colonialism and thing and, and things like that. So let me give you an example. So we know that from Cook to Cortez, when European settlers arrived in a lot of different indigenous communities, from Mexico to Honduras, Hawaii to, uh, you know, anywhere in the Pacific that we had the kind of, 
exposure to many of these different diseases, bacteria, pathogens, viruses, like smallpox or maipake, right? And that really caused a dent in the number of kanaka that, that, that existed in Hawaii. I mean, we had an 80% decrease in our population, right? Like that's genocide. But it also means that people that had certain genetic mutations or what we call variants in genes that were involved in the immune system lived. And we are all of the descendants of those kupuna, right? Modern day uh, Nijian people. And so that means that colonialism has, has shaped our genomes, has shaped our immune systems in unique ways. And we can detect that. So why is that important? That's important because it definitely has to do with where we come from. And it definitely has to do with where we're going. But most importantly, it has to do with what our susceptibility to different common complex diseases are and how we attenuate inflammation. So if you think about inflammation, there's a difference between when you sprain your ankle, right? That's acute inflammation. But when someone uh, is obese, they're in a chronic state of low-grade inflammation. And so that affects things like insulin sensitivity and susceptibility to developing type 2 diabetes and other, uh, you know, metabolic diseases. Um, it definitely has a role in cardiovascular disease like stroke and heart attacks. It plays a major role in cancer susceptibility. And we would be foolish not to see the association with something like COVID-19 and fatality based with that. So you see how our interface with colonialism, how it shaped our genomes and immune systems predisposes us to disease today. And that's the real like walking backwards into the future, understanding history in context of shaping our health today. And that information is super valuable because we might be able to develop new treatments uh, and cures for a range of issues that are, are plaguing our people. Oh, okay. Wow. So that's Does that actually- make sense. Like, I, yeah, you can follow. I mean, I know it's kind of complex, but you got, but like, as we think about these things and these are the new questions that we prioritize, this isn't a question that Haole genome scientists are interested in. Right? Oh, they're not going to right? What think about it? because I, because that means sorry. What what are what, what are the like outsider holly genome scientists? What would they be looking at? I think I think like I think approaching that question, like understanding what the effect of colonialism on the genome is, mm-hmm. is highly complex. And it requires a level of accountability on the part of settler colonialists who brought these diseases right it's like you know you should see all these shitty uh excuse me language um anthropological (laughs) explanations for why colonialism exists in the way that it does right like guns germs and steel jared diamond and really it's germs germs and germs because if 80 percent of your people die because they're exposed to a, a range of different diseases, then so 80% of your knowledge dies as well. 80% of your music, 80% of your art, 80% of your culinary 
expertise. 80% of your cultural knowledge that's related to the Moana goes away in that process. And so it's deeper than that, but it definitely has a direct effect on our genomes today. And we know that we're the descendants of this. And so rather than calling it genocide, which it is, I think a lot of our Haole or Western European counterparts will refer to it as a population bottleneck. But that word doesn't really do what happened justice, no, does it? Right. Right. So I think that's actually really interesting that uh, probably a lot of people don't understand is that our genome has been, uh, like me, you, Pacific Islanders, our genome has been um, changed by colonialism. So when you're looking at our genome in comparison to like a European genome, it looks totally different. Totally different in so many different ways. I mean, if you think about it, we are a reflection of our voyaging achievements and our accomplishments in the Pacific. So when we say the health of the Aina is the health of the people and the health of the people is the health of the Aina, we're definitely talking about that relationship. And there are some really complex, cool things that we can do. And I look forward to seeing what other indigenous people accomplish and what questions they prioritize. Like, haven't you ever wondered what the sum total and effect of testing 193 nuclear bombs between 1966 and 1996 is on susceptibility to cancer in the Pacific? Uh, Oh, yeah, definitely. And one of the ways we can explore that is through our genome. Is that right? That is right. I think I think we can possibly get there. I mean, we need to coordinate. These are sensitive things. Um, And I think we need to build consensus with community members about what people want. If that's not a question that people are interested in, then that's not one that we'll ask. Mm. But my hunch or instinct is that that is something that we would ask. So let's take it a step further, too. It's like you can you can ask that question and you might be able to detect it and say, is the effect of nuclear radiation exposure does that cause cancer and or contribute to cancer and we know that to be true in chernobyl we know that to be true in bikini atoll we see this my aunt uh worked there in many different clinics and said that you know the number of people with thyroid cancer leukemia and lymph node cancer was just too high. It didn't make sense. Otherwise, uh, you know, in sense, in, in terms of, it just only made sense in light of exposure to nuclear radiation, right? And so those are telltale kinds of cancers that we see um, when we're talking about nuclear radiation exposure. So the question is, is it just the people that were immediately exposed, like workers in Moruda and other places? Or did it become ingrained and baked into the reef and baked into the current systems and the cloud and weather systems? And now it becomes uh, radiation that's ending up in other places. And then the question is, is it transgenerational? 
meaning does somebody that was exposed to it, are their children, their keiki, are they going to have a higher susceptibility to developing cancer? Because if so, that's a different scientific question. It requires different tools, but I think, think it's extremely meaningful. And there's a level of accountability there because that means that nuclear radiation exposure has been baked into the genomes of our community. And that's genocide. And that type of data can be used in the court of law to create accountability. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. And that's, so, that's readable through the genome. Oh, sorry. And like. Right, right. And that signature, it's like inherited cancer. That signature is different than what we expect to see from nuclear radiation. And if you can differentiate between those, now we're talking about a totally different scientific question. So for me, as a Kanaka genome scientist, these are the questions that I would like to prioritize because they actually have impact in our community's lives. And rather than, you know, uh, some other kinds of ways that you could apply these tools, right? It's about w what questions you ask and mm -hmm. champion. Mm -hmm. What do the people want? Do you co-develop questions and hypotheses with communities? I think we are. I think we're doing that in some really cool ways. And, um, but, you know, we got to get there and we have a lot of community organizing to do around these questions. And if I'm honest, these types of <laughs> genome science ain't cheap, you know, so <laughs> why not? So we got to drum up financial support. Oh, I mean, it's just like it's expensive sometimes. I mean, it's become cheaper to give like our listeners some context. In 2001, when they sequenced the first genome, it was three billion dollars. Now to do the same thing, it costs, you know, less than a thousand dollars. So things are becoming cheaper. The technology becomes more accurate and reproducible, but it's still, you know, you sequence one person's genome, you know, you, you know, you want, we want to do large cohort studies of thousands of people so that we can have them, the statistical significance to make claims about things. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can see how that that amount of money scales up real quick. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, I totally see what you're saying. Um, this is a tool that's been developed recently to give us insight into all kinds of stuff. And it also is a tool and a way, uh, means of measuring things that can ultimately bring our people justice if we're prioritizing the right questions and collaborating in the right ways. And so that seems really important. And I, I hope our, our listeners catch on to that because it's such a, um, it's such a different world, you know, than what most people are used to. I mean, like you're saying, you're the only Kanaka Maoli in a genome scientist. So thank you for your work and no, no, no. Having to explain hey, hey, honestly, <laughs> no, brah. I think I'm not like. I mean, there are other people coming up too that are working on these things. I think there are folks that have a background in genetics, like the kind from Hilo is the brada uh, who made made the rainbow papaya. I mean, they clearly understand mm -hmm. the GMO one. They clear, clearly understand mm -hmm. genetics. 
Um, but it's different when we're talking about human genetics and we're talking about genome scientists. Because I want our I want people that are listening to think about this idea too. It's like we're taking something that's biological in nature and using sequencing technology, you are creating digital information that represents that. And once it becomes digital, it can be mined, it can be parsed through, it can be compared. You can use computer science at that point. Genomes, genetics becomes data science. I hope that everybody understands what we're talking about. And that's why genome science is different from plant genetics, you know, because we're, we're talking about the scale of how you compare that much information because it becomes big data at that point, right? It also becomes part of the big data um, kind of economic system. Like it fits neatly into this idea of data as a resource, right? So that information can be used to predict and model and design drugs and big pharma makes a lot of money on this. So the other kind of ways that we can achieve justice, it's not just about um, understanding like the effects of colonialism on the genome in all of these different directions, but it's about how do we get our people true equity in the sense of intellectual property and royalties and large scale circular economic systems that allow us to buy our land back the exact same land that shaped our genomes in the first place. Mm. And, and I think that's a really powerful idea. And I want to just encourage all the kind of younger scientists to think about how powerful that is and how possible that is. That's a really good background into another question, but actually side note, talking about cancer, like living Mm. here in Tahiti and like having my genes, be um or like you know i'm from this place and my parent uh, my mom's from this place my mm. ancestors come from this place i do worry that i might have cancer at some point it does cross my mind all the time because of all the nuclear testing that was happening here so i'll just say that uh that's definitely a community concern that would be really great if it was addressed by genome sciences that's the first thing. And then secondly, since you're talking about doing research with living people and asking for their data and, and working around sensitive issues such as cancer and their you know medical mm-hmm. backgrounds, um, there is um, there should be protocol around that, right? That mm-hmm. should be prioritized as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think we're just beginning to scratch the of what that protocol will look like. And that is a whole new direction for innovation in that space that can be really empowering for indigenous communities. So everything from the way we create consent forms, right, or memorandums of understanding, MOUs, um, material you know, exposure and deployment and and what people want to happen with their actual biological uh, material versus what happens with the data. How is the data protected? Who's allowed to access it? 
Is it secure? Are indigenous people comfortable having their information processed on Amazon Web Services? These are all outstanding questions that we're beginning to understand and speculate and think about and build consensus around and co-design technologies around. Uh, but it's just the beginning, I think, in a lot of ways of of how important it is to develop. Because we can't just sit here and think about like the ethics. It's like the ethics is important. But I think for me, that's the pico. Like we we always start there in Hawaii. But now it's how do we create deterrent technologies and counter technologies and safeguarding technologies to protect our information and our data and recognize it as a resource? How do we get in the driver's seat of building um, bio repositories and bio banks and really get in vertical control of all of these systems, these stacks of technology from satellites to biobanks to cloud computing to agriculture to education systems, right? Like all of these things are so important. So the protocol really needs to be threaded through all of those different stacks of technologies and approaches. And that's really hard to do, but that's the kind of approach we need to take. And we're not some dummies, we're some Akamai, you know, you know, thinkers. So we just need to assemble and approach these problems with the right intention. Right. And like when it comes to protocol, um, uh, like for, for example, recently I saw a, just a, a newspaper article about mm. uh, our DNA from Mangareva and like where we had come mm-hmm. from. It wasn't, it wasn't your guys article, it was something else, but it was just okay. putting that information mm-hmm. out there. Like, but no mention of like how they even got the DNA, how they even like right. what process they went through. Like, because those are my ancestors, right? Those are, that's my genealogy. And I would like to know, like, I wouldn't just want that in the newspaper out there. Just like, Oh, these people came from that and we use their DNA, but like whose DNA, where did that come from? Those are things that should be spoken about more, like put in the newspaper. Jeez. Because not everyone yeah, has access yeah, yeah. to understanding where that even comes from, like where that even is held, that information. Yeah, that is a great point. And I think like what you're alluding to is there's all these um, what we call legacy data sets. So maybe they were collected because like technologies evolve and the resolution at which we can look at the genome evolves over time. But so does Uh, consent and so does like our understanding of what the potential use and misuse of this information is so you have to think about it in terms of like when something was collected like if it was collected 20 30 50 100 years ago um what's the provenance the word provenance like where does it come from where did it originate right what's its pico and 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 under what circumstances was it collected? Was it collected in an exploitative way? Was it collected with proper consent? How different is consent today in 2021 versus 50 years ago? They're very different, right? Because the technologies we have to look at things are different. 
So I'll give you an example. So we have these special lei in Hawaii and in Tahiti and Marquesas and probably other places. Right? And those lei are made from human hair. So when our ali'i, our ariki, are adorning somebody with, with that lei, right? They're not thinking about the fact that 300, 400 years in the future, that hair, which is directly related to their genealogy, their mo'oku al-hau, can be sequenced and derived and turned into information. And so that makes us look critically at museum collections for ancient DNA as well, because now we have technology that allows us to look at that stuff. And I'll take it even a step further. So when Christie's and Sotheby's and Etsy and eBay feels that it's okay to sell our ancestors' hair or teeth or bones online to the highest bidder, that's a problem. That shouldn't happen. So we really have to think about how to educate people on why this is heva or criminal from the point of view of from our point of view, but also from the point of view of what is the evolution of consent and what should people have access to because it could be turned into genome information. And that information can be dangerous. It could be used to determine what 100% blood quantum is. And I guess the, but on the other side of the coin, ancient DNA could also be used to settle land claims. It could be used to repatriate our ancestors from museums. It could be used in these positive ways. So I guess like the deeper philosophical question is, is it going to be used to exploit us further or is it going to in, in, and disenfranchise us in certain ways? Um, or is it going to be used to empower us and our perspective and our initiatives and that is still up in the air. Right. So we shouldn't be taking a neoliberal approach to this, you know, as, <laughs> as everything else, it should have, you know, it should exist within uh, systems of regulation. Like, you know, our Kapuna have always done tapu, rahui, you know, you don't just have free fall for all access all the time. People know that. Correct. They do know that. Even when we're in Tuomotus and learning about Rahui in context of all of the seasonal oscillations and where you fish and what you can fish for and how and when, we have to have a more sustainable approach to how we do science as well. Just because something's a legitimate scientific question that you can ask doesn't mean that you have the agency to do that or doesn't mean that the community in which that is derived from, that information is derived from, has prioritized that question. So what we see a lot of times with Western scientists, whether it's French or English or American or Pakya in Aotearoa, it's it's all about seeking authorization, but it's not about consensus building. And that kind of, uh, it kind of leads us into some dark places. I mean, this is the same thing that's happening with TMT and Mauna Kea. It's like you get the six people you need in a room to sign some form and you think that that gives you the right to begin construction, right? 
because you got authorization, but you never actually truly wanted to build consensus and connectivity with the community mm-hmm. in, in which that, that, that land is an ancestor. And another point, I mean, if it hasn't become painfully obvious that when our Kupuna said this, this Mauka, right? This is our ancestor. This reef, this is our ancestor. And now we're having these conversations and we're seeing how the genome science is, is finally catching up with the indigenous perspective, right? We know that high elevation has shaped the genomes of people in, in Tibet and Nepal. So Chomolingma or Everest is their ancestor in that sense. Mm-hmm. We know now that our voyaging history and achievements in the Pacific have shaped our genomes in unique ways. So that is our ancestor from that sense or point of view, that worldview. So you, you get what I'm saying? Like, I think that's an important idea. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Like, we know from our worldview that we already have these relations. And honestly, we need the rest of the world to, to think that way <laughs> so that they, so that the rest of the world understands that what one person does has an effect a ripple effect, you know, it has an effect on your environment, it has an effect on your community. And so you have to be really conscious when you're just all the time, you know. Garen, Garen, I think, I think too, it's like when you consent people into a study about their genome, you're not just looking at their genome, you're looking at the genome of their whole ohana. You're looking at their mo'oku'aha, which goes back, you know, I don't even know how many millennia you know, you could make the argument that it goes back billions of years. And I don't, th- I think that that data isn't respected or understood in that way, in the context of like why that's important to indigenous people. Yeah. Yeah. So those are all things to work on for the future. Yeah, we, and then, and, we and got a lot to work on. Yeah, we got a lot to work on, but it's, it's interesting because it could be, you know, interdis- it should be interdisciplinary, right? It should work not in a vacuum, but with other people's expertise, cultural practitioners' expertise and uh, mm. community collaborations. And it could be really, Guaranteed. you know, uh, fruitful and expansive and dynamic. I agree. I think that it's going to create better science and better relationships and partnerships, lifelong partnerships. But sadly, a lot of these systems are optimized for exponential growth and profit and not infinity and sustainability. So we get into this funky rhythm where science in different people's disciplines is viewed as hierarchical. Right. Like like they view I'm not saying I view it this way. I'm just saying like this happens to be a predominant um, understanding amongst a lot of my peers. It's all about getting it into the best journal like nature or science or New England Journal of Medicine, because that's where the prestige and the recognition is. And those institutions, they privilege certain types of data over others. So if you have oral history data, you know, Mo'olelo data, you know, that is not viewed as the same 
type or level of currency as like genome sequence data. And I'm not saying I agree with this. In fact, I don't agree with this. But that just happens to be the way they build narratives and the way and what they reward. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, we have to influence those systems, too, because they're they're responsible for upholding those values. You know, they don't get a free pass either. That's these journal editors, um, people who interpret the data, too. They have to know that you shouldn't be seeking to evaluate like one type of specialization or authority over another. It's like what types of cross sections or intersections in all of these threads or lines of data uh, lead you to develop new hypotheses and new questions. I think that's a more healthy way to think about it. Oh yeah. I mean, you can't look at anything in a vacuum, you know? Guarantee. I don't think so. I don't think that that's um, as productive. You know, I, I don't want to be so Western, but it's not as productive as it could be <laughs> to to just silo mm -hmm. out something. I want to talk about these new technologies for genome editing. Have you heard about this stuff? No. Oh, bro, it's pretty cool. So, so I mean, I think up to this point, we've mostly talked about reading the genome with the genome sequencing technologies that are available, but we haven't talked about writing. We only talked about, like, what if you can find typos that exist and you can identify them and you can change them Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be interesting to people? Wouldn't they want to do that if they had this one mutation in a gene that Whoa. is involved in no. heart disease? Well, you don't think so? No, no, you don't think so? No, yes, I think people would be really interested in that. But you know how many sci fi films I've seen where like you shouldn't do that? <laughs> like at the end of the day, it ends really badly. <laughs> ah, guarantee guarantee uh but i but i mean but it's interesting to think about like because you could think about it in terms of okay so this is very much happening um for our listeners this is happening in china right now there were two children um wahines twins that were that had their genomes edited as embryos and they're running around somewhere in shanghai you know or beijing or who knows and they have had their genome edited and changed there's also another company that's been quite controversial and they've done something called they've created something called polygenic risk scores so they like can evaluate the genome sequence of 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 potential eggs in a woman's uterus they can bring and prioritize and rank them by number by polygenic risk score, and they will bring that egg down and that will be the one that they'll do in vitro fertilization or some sort of fertilization uh, technique on. And if you think about how gnarly that is, like one, if you don't have healthcare, you're not getting access to that. Two, they probably charge a handsome sum of money. And three, you can imagine that going in a direction where it's like this brave new world of health disparities where they, they offer upgrades for a price. And that is dark because that means that we're going to build out social stratification based on who has access to money and who has access to these things. And if you look at the way we've like selectively bred dogs, for example, or anything else, 
Um, we need to really, really ask some deep ethical questions. Now, unfortunately, science and the development of new tools and technologies moves at this, you know, rocket ship pace, exponential pace, and the policy and laws and ethics, uh, they lag behind it. And, you know, that's how we get into a lot of trouble. Again, I'm not endorsing this. I'm just saying this is what's happening. This is what people and venture capitalists feel the need to fund. You know, oh so we have to ask questions yeah. about that. Right. We have to ask questions about that, too. It's like, why do you think that this is a good idea to fund this? Because you're going to make more money. Not not because this is an actual way to think about the future of health and precision medicine. Um, and what's but because you're. Yeah, I mean, we have to think about what the impact is on socially stratifying people and how is this not a eugenic idea or a eugenic agenda? I just feel yeah. like um, I'm getting flashbacks. I mean, it, it exists within a certain, certain culture, right? This science, it exists within a Western capitalist culture. And we've already seen really bad examples of this when, like, who is the guinea pig where they test these, these we know. technologies, you know? Native people, indigenous people. Guaranteed. People of color. Always. 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 And it just it, and it doesn't just extend to humans like there are all th you could take this genome editing technology, right? This CRISPR Cas9 system and you can create something called gene drive. Um, and people are really interested in looking at this. In fact, um, the you know that I think Mahi should know that people want to test this in your backyard. And what are they going to do with it? Well, they want to make mosquitoes that are infertile so that they don't transmit dengue which at at first sounds like a good idea right no like, it sounds like a bad idea <laughs> right no but i'm just saying like how you trick people right how do you hoodwink people into thinking that introducing genetically modified mosquitoes is a good idea so you tell them and you promise them hey listen this is gonna reduce dengue fever and malaria and all of these other things And we will restore, you know, the habitat here to when it was, you know, right when our ancestors arrived. And they're invasive anyways, right? Right. You know, so you get into that kind of like rhythm of convincing people what the potential for the technologies. But you never unfold and unpack what the potential unintended consequences of upending a whole ecosystem are because we don't know what that is. Another example is genome editing coral. That's a very popular idea. People want to use and create pH or climate resistant types right. of coral. And I think like what we need to ask is this is these, these types of like technological fatalism. That's what they call it. This is a product of desperation It is a product of like we're putting a Band-Aid on something and we need to take away the knife. My buddy Cameron told me that saying. And I think it's really apt here because it's like we're resorting to this desperation of introducing this technology. We don't know what the techno the consequences are. But, hey, meanwhile, let's also fund the military so they can have, you know, aircraft carriers freaking idling and, and killing the atmosphere 
Uh, and don't worry about this multi-billion dollar contract to fund these F-13 or whatever Tomcat jets, you know. Um, but but if you don't, for the listeners, like if you don't see the parallel with why people always want to test this shit in islands first, and they're happy to edit the Aina to borrow a term from Riley Tidingfong. And they're happy to use our islands as laboratories always. Um, you have to ask questions about why that is. Operation from Operation Bravo, nuclear testing that went on in and throughout out, uh, you know, the Pacific. You know that these technologies are going to or at least they're going to attempt to test these new technologies on islands first because they're quote unquote isolated mm. when we know they're not. Yeah. And so you, you get into this rhythm where it's like, Oh yeah, DARPA, they want to test, you know, new technologies on islands to, you know, uh, encourage climate resilience. And, but I think we should all be suspicious about that, you know? Oh yeah, man. I mean, when when you're talking about the mosquito thing, it just reminds me of throwback to like 70 years ago or 80 years ago in Hawaii when they introduced the mongoose Darren. As, a, as a way to kill off the rats. And they couldn't even see far enough to recognize that rats were nocturnal. Mongoose are day creatures. So now they have a, a two-part problem. Garen, just dummy how it is. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, but but I think that's a great point because we're talking about the unintended consequences of things, and this is something that science is always short sighted on. I, I can know. promise you. I know, dude. It's like we can see that that happened eighty years ago. How come they cannot see that? The, the dollar bills are in front of their eyes. But uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I, I think I think. Yeah, but I think when you optimize every single system for profit and exponential mm-hmm. growth, that's a problem. Yeah. Right? When you are not thinking about local complexity and designing for local complexity and designing and prioritizing local solutions and local knowledge, this is what you get. You right. get things that don't have a long lasting impact. You know, if you think about the 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 engineering of most indigenous technologies, they're place-based, like Ahupua'a systems, they're dialectically intertwined, they're invisible to the casual onlooker, like a John Muir type of person who comes to Yosemite and he's like, yeah, it looks pristine and perfect. Meanwhile, all those indigenous people are like, what? We've been planting forest gardens here for the last you know, <laughs> 5,000 years thousand years it looks pretty but it's invisible to you I know. because you're not used to optimizing the space and thinking about technologies around abundance and sustainability you design things again for resource extraction and profit yeah and that is the rhythm we're in and that's like the problem with the capitalist operating system you know i know so we have to pre- prevent that from I mean, all, you know, industries and things like that. And also going back to the genome sciences, like that's something that I hope our listeners will get from this is that um, it may seem far away from you, but it actually really 
affects you. It's going on right now in your backyard. <laughs> it's going on right now with your ancestors. You know, people are taking part in this. And so we should be aware of how to really um, engage in it in meaningful ways as opposed to exploitative ways. Guarantee I couldn't even say that better if I tried in any language. I think <laughs> I think I think it's just important that people pick up on on many of the things that are going on around them and just be conscious and you know prioritize working on projects and prioritizing you know the health of our people and the the health of our land because they're the same thing yeah yeah exactly yeah for our our future generations for our kiki for our tapuna and for our kiki i think i love what you guys are doing here and i'm sure this one will be a little bit different than maybe some of the other ones but i think it's just important that our communities understand what's going on and if people have other questions, shoot me an email and I'm happy to do my best to answer it and shout out my Ohana and shout out Hawaii <laughs> and shout out my mom. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, but mahalo nui for having me on here. Oh yeah. Mahalo nui for sharing. Shout out, right. Shout out to our family. Shout out to Riley. Uh, as you mentioned, oh, yeah. Karen, helping us uh, mm-hmm. feed our brains and our souls and nourish us and understand how to be good people in this world. And shout out to Native Stories for allowing us to balao and parapurao and um, speak our own truths to our own communities. And if you'd like to access Native Stories further, you can check us out on our website, nativestories.com. And also you can download the app. We'll have all the podcasts and the stories about land that we've been recording over the past few years. And thank you so much. We'll see you again next time. Maru. Maru. Maru.